You can see the scripture we're going to be in this morning is Acts 21. We're finally back to the book of Acts. I've uh, taken a two-month break from this book, and um, I've been really excited to get back into it. I want to relay to you a historical account of a pastor named uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached in the early 1900s, and this is a true story. It was 11.20 a.m. in London on June 18, 1944. It was a period of terrible, as you know, total, uh, totalizing war when all the world seemed to mix fire and smoke. The British Empire had effectively ended. In recent decades, it had controlled nearly a quarter of the globe's land, making it the largest superpower in history. Now the city, London, was at the center of all being sieged. And in the midst of the aerial invasion that Germany was doing, sirens were blaring, chaos was reigning, Martin Lloyd-Jones stood up before his people. He was a few hundred feet from Buckingham Palace in his church, but he was seeking the ministrations of a higher kingdom than England's. The Germans' remote-controlled bombing of the city had begun only days before and had already caused tremendous casualties, over 10,000 a week, according to one historian. It was the stuff of madness. It was catastrophic for the city of London. But the doctor was not deterred. The whole church could hear the, pl the plane closing in. But Martin Lloyd-Jones had begun his prayer, his pastoral prayer, and he did not stop. The whining of the engine overheard grew too loud, so he had to, he had to stop until uh, the plane dropped its bomb. The congregation held their breath as the bomb fell, and then there was a massive explosion. Debris from the church fell. The structure of the chapel cracked. One woman closed her eyes moments before, and when she opened them, she saw fine white dust covering her fellow parishioners and she thought she was in heaven. The congregation rose to their feet. Panic was in the air. The church members waited to see how their pastor would react. Would he weep? Would he run? Would he panic? He wouldn't do any of that. With sirens still screaming, the doctor resumed his prayer. And at its close, he told the people that any who wished could move under the gallery for safety. A deacon then went to the podium where he stood, dusted it off, and returned to his seat. Martin Lloyd-Jones then resumed his place at the chapel's front and opened his Bible without missing a beat. He began to preach God's Word to the people. His text was Jude chapter 20, or Jude verse 20, which I'll read to you, verse 20 and 21. It says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. If you're like me, when I first read that account, it struck me. I thought to myself, what a courageous man to take the pulpit, to pray for his people, seek God as a plane literally is zeroing in, dropping bombs on him. He was not deterred. Most of us listen to that account with marvel, I would suspect. How can someone be so bold, so unafraid in the face of certain death? And what it really highlights is that fear for all of us is something that each one of us, in some way, some fashion, at some point, have to wrestle with. 
It's fear of death. It's fear of loss of job. It's fear of separation. It's fear of harm to your children. It's fear of sickness, perhaps. Whatever the case, fear can enter in many doors and take its residence in our heart. It's a sad state that we live in. And yet, there's a text. This isn't my primary text, but I wanted to read this to you. Over and over and over, if you were to do a word search of how many times the Lord says, fear not, you might be shocked. But this is out of Revelation. This is just one of those times. John says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's talking about Christ. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In our passage today in the book of Acts, chapter 21, we have the beginning of the end for Paul. And it is such a marvelous passage as I got into it, um, looking at the absolute courage that Paul had in the face of the threat of death. And I asked myself, how could Paul with such resolve continue going forward with that? It comes down to faith, but we're going to consider some of those aspects today. So we're going to look at verses 1-16 through 16 in Acts 21. If you're there, let's read it together. We're going to read all the verses. Acts 21, it says this, And when he had parted from them, he's talking about the Ephesian elders that he had met with in chapter 20. When he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on a journey. Went on our journey. And they all, with wives, children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And these, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom... We should lodge. Our three main points today are going to be these on the slides here. First, Paul's laser-like focus, or you could say all about the kingdom. Second is the message of what awaited Paul. 
And now what? Or you could say the will of God and revealed truth is what we're going to consider. And third, am I ready to die? I am ready to die. Testing the will of God as well as being tested. I get asked often, and I have been asked often, how do you know what the will of God is? How do you discern it? How do you discover it? It's a question every one of us has. And this passage is really going to help illuminate how we discover and test what or what might not be the will of God. It's a marvelous passage. It's one of those passages that was similar to Acts 9, if you remember that, where the first time I read through it, it seemed like pretty upfront basic things. And as I got into it more and more and more, it kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper for me. I'm really excited to get into this passage. So let's begin. Paul's laser-like focus to bring us up to speed and to remind us where we've come from out of Acts. Paul has finished his third missionary journey. If you remember, in, in Acts chapter 20, he's trying to wrap his dealings with all the various churches, all the cities up, because he's trying to make his way back to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, verse 16, said, For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And then the rest of chapter 20, he sails past Ephesus, he stops in Miletus, and there at Miletus he calls the Ephesian elders to him, and he gives that wonderful sermon in Acts 20. I love that portion of Scripture. So if you, didn't, if you weren't here for Thanksgiving, I think I preached that right after Thanksgiving. You can go listen to that. Such a hard task it was for Paul to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders because they and he both knew they'd never see each other again. This would be it. And he spent the most time of any church at Ephesus. So that 21, verse 1 opens up, when we had parted from them, literally the phrase there in the Greek means when we had torn ourselves apart is the idea. That's how close and how much Paul loved those people. Now, I love that imagery. I think that's the perfect picture of how a church should be. You love and have a love for each other so deep that when you are parted, it's like tearing each other apart. That's how much Paul loved the Ephesian church. But nonetheless, he was focused on the kingdom of God and he knew his time at Ephesus had ended. And so he went. That's a hard truth for both to accept sometimes. It's true that we, we encounter in our own lives as well. So he parted from them in verse 1, chapter 21. He came by a straight course to this island of Kos, and then the next day to the island of Rhodes. And then from Rhodes, they went to Patera. These were pretty historical towns. The town of Kos was where the man Hippocrates was from. He was the father of modern medicine. In fact, today, doctors still take the Hippocratic Oath when they become a doctor. And it's an ethical oath to perform medicine in an ethical way. It started in the city of Kos. So I'm sure that that city, especially for Luke, the physician, was of some interest to them. But they didn't stop. They kept going. The next island they came to was the island of Rhodes. Rhodes was also a very well-known historical coastal town. The harbor of Rhodes was considered to be the best harbor in the world, one of the best harbors in the world. It was also at Rhodes that one of the seven wonders of the ancient world once resided. The colossal statue, bronze statue, standing over ten stories tall. It had been destroyed by the time Paul came there, but nonetheless, Rhodes was also a very well-known destination for travelers. But Paul didn't stay. He kept going down to Patera. 
Those three towns there were both coastal towns, more or less. And so Paul's ship that he was on was called a coastal ship. It would just jump from city to city to city. But to go to Ptolemy or Phoenicia, sorry, in verse 2, he had to find a ship that was a seaworthy ship. So he changes ships. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when he'd come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and finally landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So while the biblical text doesn't mention really Paul staying very long, especially at Rhodes, it simply says after Kos he went to Rhodes, and then from Rhodes they went to Patera. There's actually historical accounts that Paul did spend a little bit of time there to evangelize. He converted many people, the historical account says. So he wasn't going to see the wonders of the world or what made the city so great. He was going to spread the gospel if he did get off. The biblical text doesn't say that. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It may just not have been Luke's focus. The first point here I want you guys to consider is Paul's laser-like focus on the kingdom of God. It's so easy to read past those verses of Paul's travel through these towns and miss this point. He was focused on the mission that he'd been given from the Lord. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem to be there for the day of Pentecost. So he wasted no time. As I thought about these verses, I thought, you know, if I were to come to a town like Kos or Rhodes, I'd want to stop and see the sights. I'd want to do some sightseeing, some traveling. I tend to, if you're like me, you might be this way too, I tend to compartmentalize my time and my life so that now's the time I serve the Lord, now's my free time here, here's where I get to go on vacation, here's where I'm going to do this or that. If you know what I'm saying? We compartmentalize our lives. That's not how Paul lived his life. Everywhere Paul went, he was about the kingdom. He didn't compartmentalize. He didn't demand his own time. He gave of himself constantly. We have our time for church. We have our time for work. We have our time for recreation. Paul had his time for the kingdom. And everywhere he went, that's what he wanted to be about. That's what he gave himself to. I've often thought if I were to go overseas... Would it be my intention to just rest, which I hope we could do, or would I want to seek out the believers there? Fellowship. Impart the gospel, perhaps, to somebody. Or, no, I can't share the gospel. I can't do witnessing because I'm on vacation. Didn't matter to Paul. He was all about the kingdom. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. So what I want to challenge us in these verses is to just to consider how you arrange, and how we live our life. It's so easy to just compartmentalize and live in that way. That's the American way. But really, every single one of us has a mission and can be about kingdom work wherever and whenever you are at. Here's just a few examples. If you're a parent, you can labor for the kingdom of God every single day in your home for your child, for your wife, for your husband. If you're at work, you can labor at the kingdom with your coworkers, sharing your testimony with them, giving them the gospel, speaking truth in their life. Don't neglect your duties of work. That would be sinful. But when opportunity arises, take them. 
Seek first the kingdom of God. And I guarantee you, God will open up those opportunities for you. Maybe your kingdom work is going to be focused in family and friend relationships. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you don't have a job. You still have relationships at, in families, friends, church relationships. Seek the kingdom of God first. You are on a mission field literally anywhere you are. And that's the attitude of the New Testament everywhere we find. A disciple is someone who follows and learns of Christ. Everywhere Christ went, this is what he said, I've come to do the will of my Father. When he ministered in one town, the disciples came out to him and said, hey, everybody's looking for you. You know what he said? I've got to go to other towns because that's why I came, to give them the gospel. He would take time to go pray and rest. But even in that, he wasn't simply doing nothing. He was building himself up in the inner man. So to be kingdom-minded means you are seeking the kingdom in every situation you live. That's kingdom-mindedness. And I tell you what, that's the, I think that zeal for the Lord is why the early church exploded the way it did. They were sold out. They didn't see their lives as their own, as getting to do what they wanted to do. Their life was the Lord's. And with every breath, they wanted to serve Him. So you can become over-engaged to where you're doing too much. On the other hand, many of us can do more than we currently are. You've got to find that balance. You've got to use your time wisely. But use your time for the kingdom of God. Let's move on. So in verse 4, he lands in Tyre. He's getting close to Jerusalem at this point. Jesus had visited this town in His own ministry. It says in verse 4, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. If you jump back to chapter 20, verse 22 and 23 with me, Paul said this to the Ephesian elders, way before he ever gets to Tyre, he says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So just stop and think what Paul just said. Not only at Ephesus, every city as Paul made his way back to Jerusalem, every city Paul stopped in, the Holy Spirit was telling him, Paul, imprisonments, chains, and afflictions await. He gets to Tyre, And the disciples there urge him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. If you jump down to verse 11, he's in Caesarea. He's saying with Philip the Evangelist, who we'll get to in a little while, and the prophet Agabus. We were introduced to Agabus in chapter 11 of Acts. Agabus prophesied about a famine that would cover the whole earth, and it happened. So this man was a known prophet in the church. He spoke with the authority of that office. He comes down to Caesarea when he learns Paul is there. And he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then last in verse 12, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So it's Luke who's writing. It's the plural form, we. So we have to understand who all was urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It was Luke. We're told in chapter 20, Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, was with him. 
Philip, the evangelist. Aristarchus, who Paul commended to the ministry as a godly man. Philip's daughters, who were prophets. And many more people who we don't know. These are godly, sincere people who love Paul. Urging him not to go to Jerusalem. We're going to deal with some of the complexities of this passage because this presents some challenges to us. But I want to break it down this way for you. There's two times that we are told that the Holy Spirit explicitly says something. And when the Holy Spirit explicitly said something, there was no command not to go to Jerusalem. All that the Holy Spirit said is, chains and afflictions await you, Paul. That's all that was revealed explicitly by the Spirit. We're told that the people then urged Paul not to go. This will be important. One time, it was an entire group urging Paul not to go in verse 12. In verse 4, the disciples at Tyre through the Spirit told Paul not to go. So right now I want to address the two instances where something is directly attributed to the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit was saying to Paul and what this means for us. When it comes to the will of God, you need to understand that there's really a way to break this down and understand this. And this is true for all of us. First, God has a general will that is the same for every person. Every person. You can take, for example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 up there, where Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what's God's will for every one of us? That we be sanctified. That we be changed into His holy image. That we bear godly fruit. That's His will for every single one of you. Or you can look at chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians 16-18 through where Paul writes, this is the will of God that in all things you give thanks. So what's God's will for every one of us? Every circumstance you find yourself in, you learn to give thanks to Him. So He has a general will that's the same for everyone. However, He has a specific will that is different from person to person to person. And it's not always explicitly stated in Scripture. Here we're recorded, we've read chapter 21, verse 11, where Agabus declares what the will of God was. Paul, chains and afflictions await you. But very often, we come to points in our life where we ask, what is God's will for me? Am I supposed to do this or am I supposed to do that? Because the Scripture doesn't say, Seth, you're going to move to Germany, or um, you're going to be a doctor, or how do I discover then what God's will is for me? Well, here's some guidelines. First, God's specific will will never violate His general will. In other words, God's will for you to be sanctified means that He will never ask you to be a murderer, a hitman. It's a drastic example, but it gets the point. His specific will for you will never violate His general will for everyone. God's specific will will never violate His Word either. God will never lead you into untruths. He'll never lead you into error. And so, I, I, I remember um, hearing an example that Skip Heitzig had given. He was teaching a Bible study. And there was a man who became very fond of a woman attending this Bible study and began pursuing this woman in the presence of all. And it was getting uncomfortable. Till finally this man says in the Bible study, the word of the Lord has come to me. 
and he said, I'm supposed to marry this woman. The only problem was she was already married. Was that man listening to the will of God? Obviously not. But guys, that happens all the time. Happens all the time. God's specific will will never violate his general will, nor will it ever violate his word. He has said clearly adultery is wrong, and he will not lead you into that. God's general will or specific will will never violate his character or lead you into sin. So those are some general guidelines. But still, it doesn't help much if we don't really know how to apply this, okay? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 real quick. Then I'm going to apply this to Paul in our next point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. Well, I'll just read the other verses there up there. Let's just begin in verse 16 so you can see what I was saying. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, verse 17. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. We read Romans 12 earlier, where Paul urges us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Why? Why is that presentation of ourselves to God so important? Why is it that you need to be engaging in giving yourself to the Lord? Because it's through that act where you give yourself, your heart, your soul, your mind, to be renewed in His service, that you begin to learn how to test His will. That's what Paul says, that you may test His will and prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Most of us are never taught, how do you test the will of God? How do you do this? How do you discover what God's will is for you? And here's what I've told people. Well, first, examine yourself. Are you living in a way that's surrendered to God? Paul demonstrates what surrender looks like in this passage. If I'm to go to Jerusalem in chains and die, I'm okay with that. That's what surrender looks like. God, not my will, but your will be done in my life. If you've come to that place in your life where you've surrendered yourself to him, that's the starting point to be able to discern what God's will then is for you. If you're not living surrendered to God, you'll never discern what his will is because you'll always be pursuing what your will is. The first act of the will for the Christian after we're born again is to then give ourselves back to him. It's conversion and then it's consecration. I'm going to be teaching on this point in a sermon when we get to our discipleship series after the book of Acts, but there's a difference. Very often when the gospel is presented to people, it's presented this way. Just give your heart to Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is receive the Lord Jesus. You can't give anything to Him that's acceptable in our sinful state. You need to receive His grace first. And then having been born again, what do we do? Then we give ourselves to Him. It's conversion first. And then we consecrate ourselves. The first act to be able to discern what the will of God is, is to give yourself to Him as a born-again Christian. So what's His specific will? How do we go from there? Well, 
Living surrendered to God means that when you have a desire to do something or when you have an opportunity to do something, or maybe there's two different opportunities before you and you don't know which one to do. For instance, I'll use myself with Jill. When we met and were beginning to fall in love, I had screwed up so many times before in pursuing a girl, I didn't know how to discern the will of God, whether this was the one or not. And so I was terrified to pursue her. But I'd come to a place of brokenness where I had given that over to the Lord and I had literally said, God, I won't get married because I, I don't get it. I never get it right. I'd given it over to God. Well, unbeknownst to me at the time, that had put me in the perfect position to be ready finally for a relationship. And so all those affections that I began having for Jill, I, I didn't let her know. I didn't flirt in that way. I didn't just say, hey, I love you, man. You're just... No, I, I kept it closed up. I remember telling, uh, Terry telling me at one point she thought I didn't like her because I was so closed off at that time in my life. But I was wrestling through this. How do I know the will of God? Is Jill the one? I mean, I'm really attracted to her. How do I know? So I went to Psalm 37, which says this, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will act. There's a beautiful truth in that. The word commit there literally means you roll your load, your burden over onto Christ to let Him carry it for you. It was used to Bedouins traveling across the desert and they'd pack their camels with all their belongings. They'd roll one load when a camel got tired onto the other for the other camel to carry it until they could find water. We roll our cares onto Christ and we trust Him. So that when we've done that, the desires that I at that point have might very well be from God. It might not be the fact that my emotions are leading me astray. It might be that God is using that to draw me into His will. If I've never committed my way, if I've never surrendered to the Lord, don't trust your emotions. They will lead you away. But when you're living surrendered to the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because they're now aligned with His. So then I begin to ask, well, does anything about Jill violate what God would call me into as a relationship? Is she a believer? Because He won't call me into an unevenly yoked relationship, according to His Word. Yeah, she was. Was she walking with the Lord? Yeah. Do we believe in the same Christ? Yeah. Well, do you desire her? Yeah. <laughs> I never heard from God, Seth, Mary, Jill. I never heard that. But testing all things and looking at the course and, and path that I'd come to and taken before that, I had, there was other scriptural passages, by the way, that the Lord used to confirm and lead me into that. But having learned how to test His will, before just pursuing after her, I was able to discern his will. And then I could walk in confidence in it. We've got to, as Christians, learn how to test things when they come our way. In our present passage here, Paul is being tested severely. He's being told explicitly by the Holy Spirit, chains and imprisonment await you. And his closest companions are saying, don't go. Does that mean it was the will of the Lord for him not to go? It's the same apostle. I want to make a point here for a little bit. The same apostle wrote in the book of Ephesians to put on the armor of the Lord. Part of that armor of the Spirit was the shield of faith. 
These truths that the Spirit was revealing to Paul are hard for many of us to accept. Why would God lead me into chains and imprisonment? Surely He wouldn't promise that. Why would God tell Abraham, Abraham, sacrifice your son? Bo made a good point. I talked to him about this this week. He said, if someone came to me and said, God's told me to sacrifice my son, I would think they were a lunatic. Would you? Yeah. But in Abraham's case, guess what? He was right. God did say that because it was a test for him. Abraham didn't know it at the time. The shield of faith, many of us think, is meant to shield us from things that we don't want. Many of us live and we arrange our lives so that the shield of faith might protect us from hardships and might deliver us into a life of ease or carefree and worry-free insulated lives. But here's what the Apostle Paul said to that point. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. That's out of 2 Corinthians 11. If faith was meant to shield us from hardships, then Paul's faith was severely lacking. Right? Still, maybe we think that faith was supposed to shield us from labor, from exhaustion, from toiling in the kingdom. Maybe faith is meant to just give me rest. We deserve to have our own time, a day where I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, all for me. Right? Instead of giving ourselves for the sake of Christ to be His disciple, to labor for His kingdom. Well, let me keep reading out of 2 Corinthians 11. Paul goes on, Often I was in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger in thirst, often without food, in cold, and in exposure. Paul said to the Galatian church, I labor as a woman who's in labor pains until Christ is formed in you. Any of you who've had children know labor pains are the most severe of all pains. Paul labored for that church until Christ was formed in them in the same way. So if faith was meant to shield you from exhaustive hard labor for Christ's kingdom, if it's just supposed to be easy and fun, again, Paul's faith is not worthy to be imitated for us. Perhaps you think that the shield of faith was meant to guard you from the very sorts of things that Paul was said to have ex- going to be experiencing. Chains and afflictions. A life without pain. Again, Paul's life bears witness. His faith was severely lacking if we are to have a life of ease and without pain, without suffering. My point in all this is to show how these revelations that were being made to Paul reveal to us how often we are prone to live in the temporal incidents of life. And we arrange our life to insulate ourselves from all these things. We care more about the environment that we minister in and its suitability and comfortability rather than the character and manner we live. We care more about retaining our possessions rather than dispossessing all things that we might possess Christ. Because we seek to live in the comforts of our flesh, we make our shield of faith a shield to protect those comforts.
And it was never meant to do that. In Paul's case, these comforts that he wanted to protect was he wanted to be faithful to God. He didn't want to deny his name. He wanted to live the gospel he preached. His was a shield that protected him at all costs from being unfaithful to his Lord, as he said. That's what faith should protect. So examine your life. If someone were to come to you, hey, if you continue serving the Lord in this way, here's what awaits you. What would you do? Move forward or back off? Well, Paul said, I'm ready to die for Christ if need be. This comes to our third point, testing the will of God and being tested. 1 Peter 3, if you want to turn there real quick, we're going to read a couple passages out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3.17. I want to read verse 15 through 16 with it. Because again, we won't really come to a place where we'll walk in verse 17 unless verse 15 happens in us first. Peter says, In your hearts, honor or sanctify Christ. Set Christ apart in your heart as what? Lord. As holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. So we see the kingdom-mindedness there. Always be ready. Doesn't matter where you're at. Be ready to make a defense. How does that happen? When you make a decision in your life, Christ, I am sanctifying you as Lord of my life and as holy. You are my pursuit above anything else I can be about. When you come to that place, you'll be ready to make a defense. But he goes on in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may, not be, may be put to shame. Now verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Go over to chapter 4. Peter again repeats the same sentiment in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse 19, go down. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. In 2 Timothy 3, it's one of my favorite verses, Paul simply says it this way. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And I've said this before. The word desire there in the Greek, there's two words for desire or will. One simply means, yeah, I desire to do this. The word Paul uses there is, not only do you desire to do this, but you actually do it. So I could desire someday to go visit China. I may never go visit China. So those who not only desire to live godly, but those who actually live godly in Christ Jesus, guess what Paul's telling you? You'll suffer persecution. So understanding those truths, those are scriptural truths all throughout Scripture. That was definitely true in our Lord's case. His life, He came, He lived, He suffered, and was persecuted. Peter also says in chapter 2, He left us an example that we should follow in His steps. In those steps, that's the lot for the Christian. So often today, I wrote in my notes here, 
We evaluate the will of God based on comfort, profit, or how it benefits me. Instead, here's what I want you to do when evaluating the will of God. Begin to evaluate opportunities based on the principle of the cross, and it is this. What will it cost me? How much can I give? And whom can I benefit? We usually evaluate the will of God based on what I'll get out of it. You need to start evaluating the God based on what someone else will get out of it. Hebrews chapter 12, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? So that He might save you. He endured it. That's the will of God. Completely selfless. So when these two other instances, the Holy Spirit explicitly revealed to Paul, Paul, you're going to suffer. Chains and afflictions await you. The two other instances, the people then conclude, don't go. We can sympathize with those people, can't we? Think of who Paul was to them. He was the beloved Paul, the father of so many of their faiths. They knew that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's probably going to die. And that was unbearable for him. So much so that even Luke, Timothy, Philip, all urged him not to do it. Those were godly men. But they were counseling him to do something that the express word of God says, you will suffer as a Christian. You see the impasse there? As courageous and as loving as they were, Paul stood firm. This is a quote from Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer and Master Ridley there were burned alive during the Reformation. They wouldn't renounce their faith with the Catholic Church. And as the fires were being lit at their feet, here's what Hugh Latimer said to Master Ridley. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Do you see the whole different way of thinking? If through my death the gospel will be magnified even more, let's do it. That's foreign to so many of us. But that mindset, I no longer live to myself. I am the Lord's. If I suffer, I suffer. That's when the gospel is at its peak. This was as much Paul's testing the will of the Lord as it was the Lord testing Paul. How difficult that test of faith would have been. Just thinking about, as I said earlier, those who were encouraging Paul not to go. They were godly men. They were proven disciples. Maybe some of you can attest to an example of this. When we had our missionaries here a couple weeks ago, they shared briefly to you, pray for our families because some of them are struggling with us leaving. That's this point right here. They're convinced the Lord's calling me to go as a missionary and their parents are saying, don't leave us. That's a hard separation. I remember going through that with my brother when he was called to Morocco, an all-Muslim country where Al-Qaeda was operating in. The Lord's calling me to go. And we said goodbye. Not knowing what would happen to him. Thankfully, he came back. But we've got to wrestle with, is what, God, is, is what I believe God calling me to violating anything in Scripture? No. Does it mean I'll suffer loss? Yeah. Then go. 
doesn't mean it's not God's will. It might be hard to let go, but it doesn't mean it's not God's will. Consider Abraham, as I said earlier, how difficult that would have been for him. How many of us could have taken our son, our only son, whom we loved, and done that? But guess what? That's why Abraham was the father of faith. That's why God said, righteous, you trusted me. Paul was being tested here, in my opinion. Perhaps what needed to be revealed was the severity of the trial that Paul was about to endure. He needed a period of refinement before he entered that period so that his faith would remain sure and steady. Paul lives another three years at least that we know of. But the rest of his time that we know of, he's in chains. Until finally, when he's taken to Rome, he's beheaded. Paul's no longer going to be a free man. A severe trial and a prolonged trial Paul was about to enter. I think this was as much a test of Paul as it was Paul testing what his companions were saying to him. It's easy to have pity on those people, but nonetheless, they nearly led him astray. Consider that point. Be wise, not only as the one being tested when you're trying to discern the will of God, be very wise when you're counseling others with the will of God. In your best loving intentions, you might be counseling them astray. I love Paul's answer. It's truly revealing of the depths of self-surrender that Paul had been operating under. He had truly died to himself, as he said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. With that, I've got just a few concluding nuggets that I didn't want to make my main points, but they were beautiful points nonetheless. The first, looking back in uh, Acts 21, look at verse 15 with me. So this is immediately following Paul's encounter with everyone at Philip's house. They conclude, verse 14, because he wouldn't be persuaded, they ceased trying to get him to stop going and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Then verse 15, after those days, referring to that, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Now you can read over that, and it might just mean Paul packed his bags and they went. I don't think that's what Luke had. This is a, this is a little bit out of place here. This is a meditation for you to think about. We got ready and went up to Jerusalem. What they get ready for? for what awaited Paul. You see, when, when you know you're going to be entering into some kind of hard, difficult season, there's got to be spiritual preparation. There's got to be spiritual disciplines. You must be praying. You must be fasting. You must be fellowshipping with others in the Word, in the Spirit. So I don't think Luke is focusing on the fact that they simply packed their bags and got up to Jerusalem. I think when they resigned to let the will of the Lord be done, they spiritually prepared before they walked up that 62 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem and walked in to Jerusalem to be bound. They knew what would happen. Are you ready for it? So many times when you read history, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, for instance, the early persecution of the Christians when they were being taken to the Colosseum and torn apart limb by limb by animals, 
by gladiators. The spiritual preparation that these, these men underwent was incredible to read about. They prepared themselves to be able to endure. I think that's what Luke is saying. I want you to think about that point. There are seasons in your life you've got to understand what awaits and prepare yourself for it. There's one martyr I read about who didn't prepare himself. And when the flames were lit at his foot, he recounted his faith. And he jumped out. He came under such conviction immediately that he threw himself back in the flames, unbound, and stayed there. Second, here's a question for you. Does the threat of suffering loss deter you from doing the will of God? Doctrinally, we know how to answer this. But practically, if we're honest, we tend to insulate our lives and ourselves from loss. Don't we? We do. All of us do it. And it could be loss of a loved one, loss of life, loss of time, loss of property, loss of finance, whatever. Does the threat of suffering loss deter you from doing the will of God? We know generally God wants you to be sanctified. Does the loss of what you want to do with yourself deter you from being sanctified? It's a good question. If you know the will of God for you is to grow, are you doing things that are not allowing you to do that? Are you putting yourself in a position that's not allowing you to grow? Are you missing out? Perhaps we need more realistic question. We don't have ISIS, right, sitting here with a knife to our throat. But think of it realistically. What is it that I fear losing most? Would you surrender that to the Lord? I think of this very often in light of my own children. The struggle, letting our children fail, letting our children perhaps go off to a mission field. The fear of losing or failing them in parenting. Identify those areas that you know that you're weak in the flesh. Begin to, to deal with God. I confess this to uh, Bone Duane. I'll confess it to you. For me, I don't fear telling people the truth. It doesn't really matter who you are. It does, it, I don't care if you're of position or authority or great. I don't, I don't fear that. But I do fear the situation that it will cause. If I know telling so-and-so, hey, living with your girlfriend or whatever is going to create a huge problem in the church, I fear the situation. And I know I'm tempted not to tell them the truth, not out of fear of them, but out of fear of what's going to happen. Just being honest. I know that about myself. I've got to deal with that before the Lord because as a pastor, I don't have the luxury to insulate myself from just no problems in the church because then I'll begin to make decisions to insulate myself against it. You see the problem? Same is true for you. What areas of your life do you fear? Third, there's some interpretive challenges here. The prophets in verse 4 who spoke through the Spirit warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I wrestled with this for a long time. Because you can read it in a way where it says that the Spirit was saying through these men, telling through these men for Paul not to go. Well, if that's true, if Paul went to Jerusalem, was he being disobedient to the will of God? There's pastors and commentators who say, yes, Paul was being disobedient in going to Jerusalem. And that the chains he, he had 
were as a result of his disobedience. Paul would have gone to Rome as a free man, but instead he went in chains. I don't believe that. Come to the conclusion, what the Spirit consistently, explicitly, we are told, was saying is that chains and afflictions await, chains and afflictions await you. Never did he say, don't go. And so, when prophecies are given, and you see this in churches often, people will prophesy, you test it because the prophets can be misinterpreting something. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 14. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5, test all things because a prophet can be misinterpreting what the Spirit's revealing. I believe what the Spirit was revealing to these men was that chains and afflictions awaited Paul. They concluded, don't go. But work through that. It's a good issue. Last of all, I want to highlight this reunion with Philip. This is so beautiful. You remember Philip. He was one of the seven in Acts chapter 6, right behind Stephen, who was chosen as a first deacon. Incredible man of God. Stephen was stoned and killed. The very next person Acts focused on is Philip. He goes to Samaria. He's the first to preach to the Samaritans. He preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. First of the gospel to go to Africa. Then he's taken by the Spirit to another town. Incredible man of God. But why did he flee to Samaria? What compelled him to go? A young man named Saul was ravaging the church. He was fleeing from Saul's wrath. And now that same man, Saul, is standing in his living room fellowshipping with him. You see the beauty of that? What the gospel can do? Philip once ran from Paul. Now he's hosting him as a brother, fellowshipping with him. That's the power of the gospel. God's sovereignty is such where he doesn't need a plan B. He doesn't need a plan B. I want to read a quote to you. We shall all look back after a little while, and what a thing this looking back will be. Are there not people who knew 20 years that we knew 20 years ago that we would not care to meet today? Think about your own life. Are there people that you hope you never see again? Is not that how Saul would naturally have felt about Philip? One of those dear remembered faces that he had caused to be full of pain. What a transmuting and transforming thing this fellowship with Christ is, that it can bring together the men who 20 years ago were afraid of each other, were fighting each other, were persecuting each other. And now it can enable them to talk of the old things and see in the fire and the persecution the very finger of God. It is a blessing, a blessed thing to look back when we have found our way into a true fellowship with this Lord Christ Himself, G. Campbell Morgan. That's the beauty and power of the gospel. I want to sing one last song uh, as I invite the worship team up. It's, a, it's another hymn, but it's done by Chris Tomlin called Take My Life, and it's a hymn of dedication. And so as I want you to spend a little time in prayer as we set up and just examine your life. Examine where you're at with God. Are you holding back something from Him? And if so... Let this time, let this song be your confession and say, God, take it all. He purchased all of you, but he doesn't rip all of you out. He says, give it. Present yourself to me now as an offering. So go before the Lord and take some time.
Father, when we consider your son, Jesus, who left the realm of glory, the fellowship of angels, who is seated on high and in perfect fellowship, he left it all and he came to earth, veiled his glory with flesh, and one day he was even separated in fellowship when he became sin. Father, when we consider these truths of what Christ endured that he might reconcile us. It's no no small thing, no overbearing thing that you would ask us to give us, to give you all of us, ourselves, our heart, our mind, our will, our desires, our lives. We owe it all to you, Lord. Father, as we sing this last song, I pray your spirit searches us, tries us, tests us, that these professions of faith in Christ would not be empty, that they would not be devoid of devotion to Christ as well. Father, may you use this time to grow us as your children, to very gently, in in the way that you work with men, very gently take those things that maybe up to this point we've been unwilling to give. Father, may we come to a place where we gladly and joyfully surrender all to you. Because that's where we find true life, true joy, true meaning, true purpose, true freedom. Father, would you minister to us these truths as we sing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Please stand.